Church of Omaha. It is a beautiful spring morning, although I will say I'm kind of tired of the weather going back to cold and then warm and then cold. It's kind of like a tease. I would like it to just stay about 68 degrees all day long would be fantastic. Uh, minus the cutting the grass part, but everything else I look forward to. I'll give everybody a few minutes to kind of get in and get seated. Uh, my wife is passing out a handout. We will use that toward the end of today's message. So uh, make sure everyone gets one of those. And this time I will try to make sure I get all the blanks. I realized last time I did this, I forgot to say one of them and I had like 10 people come up to me afterwards. So I will try my best to remember. Um, I also want to say uh, hello and good morning to all those who are watching online. It is kind of surprising. Um, the other day, I was looking on YouTube. We put all our stuff up on YouTube, and there was this particular message that I preached probably almost a year ago now. And um, the, that particular message was a, the road to a reprobate mind. And um, I was looking through the comments, and it was amazing the, the comments that people were putting on there about how that they felt that through that message, God was uh, warning them and, and calling them to repentance and those kind of things. And I think sometimes we, we who are familiar, who are comfortable with coming to church every Sunday, um, discount sometimes the power that social media can be used for. It has a lot of bad things, but there are some positive things that we can use social media. I just say that to say that people are always watching. And you can have an impact even when you don't know that you're being watched. So be consistent. All right, this morning I want to um, talk to you about learning to lead, learning to lead. Now, last time I stood before you, which was two Sundays ago, um, I, I preached a message called Trust Versus Suspicion. And in that message, we, we talked a lot about how that often there is a gap between what we expect others to do and sometimes what they actually end up doing. And sometimes we have a, a preconceived idea of how we think something should be done or how a person should respond or how they should conduct their lives. And in reality, what they actually end up doing is maybe not how we thought it should have gone. But when that happens, when there is that gap, we get to choose what we fill that gap with. We get to choose, are we going to automatically be suspicious and think the worst possible motives or are we going to be gracious like God and extend trust to them and give them a chance maybe to explain or give them a chance to apologize or set it right? And likewise, that when we uh, cause the shortcomings, that we are willing to apologize and, and bridge that gap. And if you will allow me today, I, I want to kind of continue this message, but kind of from a different perspective. A lot of that last message was about how we view others, specifically how we view um, leaders in our lives and even how we view God. Do we, do we extend to God and to our leaders um, trust or do we extend to them suspicion? Today I kind of want to take it from a different angle and talk about our responsibility as leaders and how we are to treat others. And so today I just want to talk to you about learning to lead. Now I have mentioned several times from this very pulpit and some of you may be tired of hearing me say this at this point but that leadership is not a title and leadership is not a position but leadership is simply influence nothing more and nothing less but if you would allow me i'd like to take that definition a little further today i'd like to go a little beyond that because while leadership is influence and and leadership can be good or it can be bad there is a very 
unique distinction when we talk about leadership within the kingdom of God. Godly leadership is very different than how the world defines leadership. You see, the aim of leadership in this world is to climb the ladder of success. It's to be the top dog. It's to make the most money, to look the most important. Imagine for a moment Joe Biden scrubbing toilets at the White House. Or imagine Bill Gates cutting the lawn outside of Microsoft headquarters. This would never happen. Why? Because in the world's view of leadership, they are at the top, and therefore they have others to do those tasks. They are too important to have to do some of the menial tasks. They have others who serve them because they are the leaders. But godly leadership is very different than how the world defines leadership. The role of leadership in God's kingdom is never to promote the leader. The world asks, what can you do, what can you, the worker, do for me, the leader? What can you contribute to make my business successful? But godly leadership asks, what can I, the leader, do to make you successful in the kingdom of God? Godly leadership says, how can I, the leader, serve you so that his kingdom may grow? Now, if I were to ask you this morning, who is the leader of the church? And by church, I don't mean TCOO, I mean the body of Christ. I would hope that there would be no hesitation, no question, no doubt that we would all easily say that Christ is the leader of the body. He is the leader of the church. Amen. With that in mind, I want you to think for a moment about what Jesus did during his time here on earth. Here, the leader of the free world, the leader of the universe, the king of glory, the king of kings, the eternal God who came down in flesh, what did he do during his time on earth as a leader? Did he use his leadership to belittle others? Did he use his leadership to have others serve him while he sat by and did nothing? No. You see, at even the highest moment of Christ's earthly ministry, Jesus rode on the back of a donkey. He wasn't carried by slaves or trotted around in a golden chariot. But even this was a one-off. You see, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, ate with sinners. He walked from town to town so that he could serve others. He endured all manner of accusations and mockery. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He gave hope to the hopeless. There was not one ounce of sin or guile found in him. Surely after living a life such as his, we would expect others who, on this earth to reward him with riches and titles. But we know that this was not the case. Instead of seeing Jesus for who he really was, the Jewish elite saw Jesus as a challenge to their leadership, as a challenge to their status, as a challenge to their authority over other people. Instead of welcoming in the very person who they were supposed to be waiting for, they rejected him. Yet despite this rejection, he still willingly endured the cruelty of the cross. While we may see these events as an atrocity, Jesus simply looked at them as a fulfillment of what godly leadership 
is really all about. Turn with me to John chapter 13. It is not lost on me that next Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. It's not lost on me that next Sunday many people who don't normally go to church will grace these pews and pews are all across this nation. And, and we will hear the story of the suffering that Christ endured on the cross. We will talk about how that, that, that payment of sin was made for us to have eternal life. But I worry that sometimes in our modern day Christianity, we view what Christ did on Calvary in a selfish way. What I mean by that is we look at the price that Christ paid as a way to excuse and to dismiss all of our choices. And while it is absolutely true that Christ died for you and died for me, that he paid the penalty for sin that we could never pay, he did what we could never do, it does not excuse us from responsibility. It does not allow us or permit us to simply sit on chairs Sundays and Wednesdays and do nothing else with this gift that Christ so graciously gave us. No, there is an expectation that Christ has for those who call themselves Christians. Look at John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he was come from God, and he went to God. Here is, here is Jesus eating what he knew was going to be his last meal as a man. Here is the culmination of, of his earthly ministry. He is surrounded by his closest friends. And we just read in these few verses that Jesus knew at this point that he had all power over heaven and earth. He knew that he was God robed in the flesh. He knew that he had all authority, that there was nothing restrained from him. Meaning that at any moment he could have changed the events that he knew were about to occur. But as we read in verse 1, it says that he loved them unto the end. There was a reason he chose to allow things to play out the way that he did. Because he loved them unto the end. Pick back up in verse 4, it says, He riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Here is the final lesson that Jesus is teaching to his disciples before he ends his earthly ministry, before he goes to endure Calvary. And this last message, this last lesson that he was teaching his disciples was that godly leadership is a towel and not a title. It's focused on eternity and not temporary rewards. It's Christ-centered and never self-centered. 
Now, before you get this message twisted into thinking that this message is all about bashing imperfect leaders, about bashing those who, who fail to meet up to what it is they are called to do, let me throw out this warning right here and right now. Because I don't care how long you've served in ministry, how many years you've come and sat on these chairs at this church or any church across this nation. You are never above being led. You will never reach a moment in your walk with God. You will never reach a status, a title, a position, or a place where you do not also need to be led by God and by godly leaders. You will never reach a point in your Christian walk where you don't need others to speak into your life. Let me prove this to you. You see, at the Last Supper, we see Jesus teaching his disciples about the necessity of the body and the blood. This is what we often talk about at Easter time. We talked about how that he sacrificed his body. We talked about how that he bled for us. And how that if they, the disciples, are not partakers of Christ's sacrifice, then they will not be saved. But the lesson did not stop there. The lesson that he saved for last was when he took the water and bowed down and washed the feet of his disciples. Why did the king of the world stoop down to wash the feet of these lowly fishermen and tax collectors? Well, let's pick back up in verse 6 to find out the answer. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. You see, Jesus knew that the purpose of his leadership was to bring others to salvation. He told Peter, if you don't allow me to serve, or we could also say, if you don't allow me to lead you, then you will have no part with me. But this lesson was not just for the disciples' benefit. Jesus was modeling for them servant leadership. Look down to verse 12 with me. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garment and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. And if I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. You see, I'm afraid that in much of modern day Christianity, the church has forgotten what godly leadership really is. We equate a call to ministry with standing on the stage with the spotlight focused on us as we lead the team in worship, as we preach the message, as we excite the people with our, our oratory skills, we equate leadership 
with position and status, but godly leadership is about serving others. It's about recognizing that you are part of something that is so much more important than your simple 15 minutes of fame. Godly leadership has eternal consequences. It goes beyond having your name on a placard outside of a door. It, it goes beyond being recognized on Facebook or on YouTube. It goes beyond any earthly pat on the back that you can get. Your leadership, godly leadership, has eternal consequences. Now, I can imagine that there may be some sitting in here or, or some listening online who are thinking, well, this really doesn't apply to me because I'm not called to preach. I'm not called to lead the, the, the musicians or the singers. I'm not called to teach Sunday school. Therefore, I'm not a leader. I don't, I don't need to hear this message. It, it doesn't apply to me. But I must caution you that what you are saying is that you are not responsible for serving others. What you are saying is that you are content to warm the seat and let others lead. You bear no responsibility of leading. But let's turn to the book of Jude. Because I want to show you why leadership, why your call to servanthood, why your call to reach others is so important. It's not about getting applause. It's not about making people feel good and happy and cheerful on a Sunday morning. Listen to what Jude says is the purpose of leadership and who it applies to. Jude chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. So if you are sanctified by God, if you are preserved in Christ Jesus, and if you are called, this message is speaking to you. Hint, hint. Everyone is sanctified by God. No one in this room is sanctified by me. No one in this room is sanctified by Bishop Powell. We are sanctified by God because only he has the power to do so. We are all preserved by Christ because only he has the power to do so. And we are all called by God because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. And what is he saying here in verse 2? Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Jude was writing to the whole church, to the whole body of Christ, both present and and to come. He was writing to all believers to warn them that they are all, that we are all called to earnestly contend for the faith. But let me explain what this phrase, contend for the faith, means. It does not mean that you need to defend God. It does not mean that you need to defend His Word. God does not need your protection. God does not need your validation to make His Word true. Defending God is like trying to defend a lion. You just need to step out of the way and let God do what he can do. 
Contending the faith is not talking about you arguing with others. It's not what this phrase means here. Contending for the faith is a call that every single believer has. And it simply means this, that we are called to push back the darkness of this world so that other sinners can have the, the chains and the bondage of this world broken for them, that they may experience salvation and hope that we have experienced. Contending for the faith is reaching out to a lost and dying world and saying, don't give up. Keep trying. Keep pushing. Contending for the faith is not a you thing. It's a they thing. It's a reaching out, just like others have reached out for you. Let's look back in verse 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Jump down to verse 22. And of some have compassion, making a difference. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Your leadership. Now I want you to hear this. I want you to really hear this. Your leadership may be the very thing that pulls the sinner out of the fires of hell. It may be the very thing that helps the struggling saint not walk out of the back door and never return again. I'm not saying that you were offering them salvation. I'm not saying that you paid the price for their sin. But what I am saying is that just as Jesus told Peter, that if Peter did not allow himself to be led by Jesus... He had no hope of salvation. I'm saying that this world has no hope of salvation if we, the church, do not stand up and do what it is that we are called to do. If we do not fulfill our godly commission to lead others to Christ, how could we expect them to be saved? Your leadership is not a suggestion. Your call to godly leadership is not some grandiose thing that one day when you finish Bible college you can do. It is your calling now. From the moment you have the Holy Ghost, from the moment you have been cleansed of your sins, you are called to leadership. Now I know what you're saying, but wait a minute. How can I, someone who just started in church, who just got saved, how can I lead others if I don't even know all of the Word of God? I don't have all the scriptures memorized. I can do all things, how? Through Christ. You see, this world has it so twisted that the only way that you can lead, that you can be successful, is by your own strength and your own charisma, your own wisdom, your own knowledge. And Christ is saying it is the exact opposite. You can do nothing on your own. But he doesn't want you to do it on your own. 
We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. This is why the word tells us to put on the mind of Christ, not of the world. We are to put on his righteousness, not ours, not our good works. We are known by his works, by his perfection, by his love. That is how we are known. Here in a minute, I'm going to go through your handout, and I'm going to talk about the hallmarks of a good or of a godly leader. But as I do this, I want you to understand something. If it hasn't already been made clear, all of us are called to be godly leaders. So as we go through these last couple things, I, I'm starting to run low on time already. Let's get into our handout. I want you to know that this is not speaking just to preachers. This is not speaking just to Sunday school leaders or title holders. This is for every member of the body of Christ. Turn with me to your handout and we'll start with number one. Godly leaders must first learn how to lead themselves. Godly leaders must first learn how to lead themselves. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8, we, we hear this particular verse a lot. We quote it a lot. It's, it's preached a lot. We, we do this a lot when we're trying to get people to, to be outreach-minded. We say things like, verse 8 says, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. Awesome verse, powerful verse. But you've got to start before this verse to understand the power of this verse. You see in verse 1 of that chapter it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Listen to what he says next. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Before we reach verse 8, Isaiah first had to be cleansed himself. He had to have a right perspective of who God was and who he was in comparison to God. Before Isaiah could stand up and say, yes, I'm a prophet of the Lord. And yes, I'm ready to go and speak to kings. He first had to learn to lead his own self, his own heart. And he did this by first having a right perspective of who God is. And how that God is perfect and he is not. Then, after this, we get to verse 8. 
Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I. Send me. Before Isaiah could fulfill his calling, he first had to learn to lead himself. This is why Paul says, Follow me as I follow Christ. Number two, godly leaders value trust and faithfulness over performance. Godly leaders value trust and faithfulness over performance. Now, this one has two directions. First, the most talented speaker can move a crowd to shout. But if the crowd does not trust the leader, meaningful change will never occur. We can get up here the most energetic, intelligent, charismatic person who could give you a good message full of one-liners and you could shout and feel the goosebumps. But if when you left this building you didn't really trust that speaker, it is very unlikely that you are going to actually make changes based on what they said. We have to learn that to be an effective leader we need to spend more time cultivating trust and being faithful and less time on being popular. If you want to be an effective leader, and again, not position or title, if you want to be an effective leader in your job, in your home, you have to spend more time learning how to be trustworthy and faithful and less time worrying about being popular with those around you. Because at the end of the day, people are looking for something real. Not just another person they can be friends with. Not just another person that's on the in crowd and popular. This world needs something that is real, authentic. The second thing, the way this is focused is this. When picking people to serve... So whether it's you are starting an outreach team, whether it is you are leading Sunday school, whether it is you are going to be a pastor one day, whatever it is, whatever ministry, whatever it is that you are leading, and you are trying to, to surround yourself with people to help you reach the goal that God has given you, you need to pick people who are trustworthy and faithful and let performance be a secondary trait. Performance should not be the main thing. Their talent and skill should not be your priority when trying to surround yourself with people who are going to help you achieve the goals that God has given you. Because you see all the talent in the world and no trust produces a team of one. A team of pride, a team of ego that ultimately at the end of the day is concerned about themselves and how they look. And how do they sound to the people? But godly leaders must surround themselves with people who are more concerned about the mission than they are about the accolades. So godly leaders worry more about trust and faithfulness than they do performance. Number three. Got ten minutes left. Okay. Good leaders willingly receive, and this is going to be a hard one, so just hear me out. Good leaders willingly receive correction and criticism as an opportunity for growth. 
Good leaders willingly receive correction and criticism as an opportunity for growth. No leader is perfect. And no leader is above correction. Please hear this. You will never reach a place in your earthly walk with God where you are perfect. You will never reach a station in ministry where you don't need to be corrected from time to time. Now understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you just get to walk up to Bishop Powell and say, Bishop Powell, you're messed up. You have done X, Y, and Z and, and use that as an excuse to just be rude or to, to explain to them all their, their mistakes, what you don't like about them. That is not what I am saying. What I am trying to say is this, is that we as leaders, because remember, all of us are called to be godly leaders. We as leaders must have a heart that is more concerned about seeing his mission fulfilled than we are about our own ego. And therefore, when I receive correction, I need to look at it as saying, God, thank you for showing me where I fall short. The same thing with criticism. Not all criticism is fair. Not all criticism is even true. But if you allow criticism to make you angry and drive a wedge between you and another person, you cannot fulfill your job as a godly leader. You have to learn how to put your spiritual calling above your fleshly ego. Amen. And listen, it is a continual process. I don't know of anyone who has mastered it yet. I for sure have not. I get offended. There are things that people say to me and about me sometimes that offends me. It makes me mad. It makes me want to go say something to that person. But at the end of the day, me telling that person off is not making me a godly leader. And it's not helping them learn how to grow either. You see, how you respond to criticism is just as much a teaching moment as it is a learning moment. It is just as much a growth opportunity for you as it is also for them. Because when you respond in a godly fashion, you are showing them, wait, that's how it's supposed to be done. You allow God to correct. You allow God to, to work on those things. It's not your place to tell off everyone who ever says a bad thing about you. Again, it's a work in progress. Proverbs 12 and 1. Whoso loveth instruction loveth knowledge, but he that hateth reproof is brutish. In another translation, I was just going to go with that one, it says that he that hateth reproof or correction is stupid. <laughs> it's, it's kind of crude, but, but what, what's being said here is this, is if you hate correction, if you hate being shown where you are wrong, then that's not very smart because the Bible says that he corrects them that he loves. God corrects you because he loves you. He wants to see you change and to grow and be more like him. So when you receive correction, you just have to tell yourself, God loves me. He's trying to get me to work on some stuff, even though I don't like it at the moment. But God corrects them that he loves. The fastest way to lose influence over people 
is to act like you are too good to grow. When you try to portray yourself as perfect and without error, you are saying you are on par with God. I could honestly spend an entire message on this one single topic. But let me say this and I'll, I'll move on. Don't let your pride and ego destroy you, your ministry, and those around you. Even Peter, the man who delivered the, 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 the message of salvation on the day of Pentecost, even Peter, who was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, had to be corrected by Paul. In Galatians, it says that Paul withstood him to his face because he, he was acting out of hypocrisy and how he was treating the Gentiles. Even Peter, the man who we quote all the time for salvation, had to be corrected. No one is above correction. I hope that all of us are taking this and looking at it this way and not this way. I hope all of us are, are taking this message and looking at it toward ourselves. Because what the enemy would like to do is to immediately make you think, oh yeah, there's that one person in this church. They need to hear this. They really need to know this. But if that's how you view this message, you're not getting what God has for you. Because you can't make them change. You can't force them to be more godly. But you can work on yourself. All right, number four. All right, three minutes. Here we go. Good leaders value people over positions. Good leaders value people over positions. Your ultimate aim is not to recruit new Sunday school teachers or van drivers. Your ultimate goal, here it is, if you want to know what the goal of any ministry you ever do for God, any ministry, your ultimate goal is to make disciples. Not to raise up the newest, greatest uh, speakers who are going to go on the circuit and preach camp meeting. If that happens, great. Awesome. But your ultimate goal for any ministry is to make disciples. Uh, okay, number five. Godly leaders recognize that people are the mission and not just a means of growing a large church. Godly leaders recognize that people are the mission and not just a means of growing a large church. Godly leaders equip, empower, and educate others to complete the mission at hand. They do not see others as a threat to their position, but rather they see others as a force multiplier. There was a man once who asked this Navy SEAL, he said, can you tell me, who makes it through Navy SEAL training? Now, if you don't know anything about the Navy SEALs, uh, you should know this, at least this one thing. Their training has a washout rate of about 93% meaning that only about 7% of people who try to become a Navy SEAL will make it. In that first week, they call it Hell Week. And the whole purpose of that first week is to weed out all the weak people. It's to get rid of as many people who aren't, don't want to do it as possible. And this, this Navy SEAL said, I, I can't tell you, and I'll close with this last little section here, I can't tell you exactly what people uh, are the best type of people that make it. He said, what I can tell you is this. The big, strong college athletes don't make it. The people who've been in the military and have been leaders for a long time, they don't make it. The Harvard-educated who come and think they're so intelligent they can get through this, don't make it. He said, the people who I see make it 
are the ones that are often cold and shivering and afraid and always on the verge of wanting to give up. But they somehow find a way to look to the person next to them and help them. And that mission, that calling of always reaching for someone else is what gives them the strength to not quit. Church, if you try to live for God only worried about yourself, at some point it's going to be too much and you're going to quit. But God calls us to a life of leadership where our priorities are always looking to help others. And in doing so, when we are others-focused, it strengthens us to go on for another day because we realize that other people are depending on us to make it as well. Let's all stand. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to hide your word in our heart, God. Help us to have a change in our mindset. Help us to be God-centered, to have godly leadership, to be focused on the mission and less on our ego and less about our own self. Lord, I pray help us to seek you first in all things. Help us to be teachable, to be humble, to be willing to receive correction and look at it as an opportunity for growth. Lord, we love you. We pray for those who are not here today because of sickness, those who are traveling. We pray that you would be with them. Lord, bring us back in the second half and let us worship you in spirit and in truth. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Be back in 10 minutes for worship.